August 1977, a narrowband radio signal at Ohio State picked up something odd. A signal abruptly broke the deadening silence of space. For 72 seconds, something, or someone, appeared to be contacting us from the constellation Sagittarius. Despite repeated attempts, the sound was never heard again. Since then, it has gone down in history as the WOW signal, a name appropriate for its uniqueness and possibility. October 2017. An object a few hundred feet across enters our solar system. It would be the first interstellar object ever recorded entering our solar system. But that's not the only unique thing about it. Rather than a normal spherical shape, the object was shaped like a cigar or possibly a saucer. But it gets stranger. As it passed our sun and exited our solar system, it sped up as if propelled by something. The object, now known as Oumuamua, has never been classified. But one Harvard astronomer, Avi Loeb, has risked his career by proposing what was on everyone's mind. It was alien in origin. September 2019. The Navy confirms the authenticity of three leaked videos showing objects that, to this day, remain unidentified. Seth Shostak, head of SETI, has recently told Congress that it is virtually certain we will find aliens in the next two decades. Welcome to another episode of the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. On this week's episode, we have UFOs, Martian baptism, and alien Jesus. I'm your host, Seth Hart, joined with Jonathan Lionheart. You know, Jesus has always been an alien, Seth. He was an alien foreigner when he fled to Egypt. He is a foreigner to us in the West because he's not from here. So I can't believe he didn't go with the fact that he's God, you know, coming down into Earth. So he's like not from Earth. So he's like, by definition, extraterrestrial. You I know, was getting the whole there. ancient aliens route. I was building a progressive and you took too long. No. OK, well, whatever. Yes. Jesus is the ultimate other, the ultimate alien in that sense. The one who is transcends, start with who transcends us and is other from us and yet has come down to Earth among us, walking among us, as the alien folk do, Seth. As the alien folk do. You know, when I was at Oxford, there was a professor there who came out and said that there are aliens disguised as humans walking among us. And it was like this big thing. And I just thought in my head as a Christian, it's just like, man, that would have been like nearly as extreme as thinking that God walks among us disguised <laughs> as a human. Well, actually is a human, but there you go. Well, I mean, Superman is the perfect parallel here because he is other than us and yet also one of us. And I mean, the, the central tension in Superman, which is about an alien life form, is that incarnational tension of how he can be both the human person, but also Superman. 
both of those things at once, how he can be this other transcendent, absolute, all-powerful thing, and also one of us. What a coincidence. It seemed like they based it off this idea or something like that. Superman was created by Jewish authors. It might have evolved so into that, but they didn't base it off of it. I'm just saying- Well, they didn't base it off of it, but it became that just because yeah. that's the central mo- Like, that's a central motif that you see yeah. pop up. I mean, think about the Thor movie, right? The Thor movie, he's sent to Earth by his father- he gives himself up sacrificially, rises in a glorified form after that sacrificial death. That's that's a Marvel movie. I could think of like 20 other ones. I think the key point here, Seth, is that alien Jesus loves you and died for your splash. That was that was gorgeous. Was that Klingon? That was. <laughs> OK, I wouldn't put it past you to learn Klingon. Well, I have I have met a few humans, I will say, that made me think they might be of another alien life course does one look at you in the mirror every morning no but just just have you ever met someone and you just thought i wouldn't be surprised if you were a different species there were a few at our undergrad there's there's definitely a few there's definitely a few at cambridge now, speaking of aliens we have someone all the way from england joining us today to talk about the topic john would you introduce them uh, yes, we're very privileged to have Dr. Andrew Davison, who is the Starbridge Lecturer in Science and Religion at the University of Cambridge. He first did his doctorate in biochemistry and then pivoted from the sciences to theology to pursue another doctorate in theology. So he is coming with a wide range of expertise. I believe he did his doctorate in biochemistry at Oxford. So he's got both Oxford and Cambridge in his blood. And he also, I believe, was involved in a project with NASA quite recently, specifically exploring what would happen if we discovered alien life and the religious implications of that for our society and for connecting with their society. So Dr. Davison is a very prestigious fellow indeed. Unlike us poor saps, he actually has some credentials to his name. So when it comes to talking about this stuff, I'm kind of glad we got him on, especially following up on Paul Rimmer's talk. So with that, let's go ahead and jump in. Well, we're joined here today by Dr. Davison. Dr. Davison, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Now, you're probably the first guest that we've had that has made it into CNN and the Times articles. Uh, apparently, you work for NASA. Now, I have to ask, how many aliens have you met? I haven't met any space aliens, although I suppose the Bible is full of uh, injunctions that we should be warm towards aliens, which means, uh, I suppose, uh, people who are sojourning with us, and I've uh, met some of them. Well, that's disappointing. I've read in these articles that it said that you worked for NASA. My initial assumption is, of course, you're working with extraterrestrial life. How have you not been able to meet any? Is there any truth to these articles at all? Well, the news reports were certainly onto something, but I learned that news articles report on news articles, and eventually error gets uh, introduced. So the, the truth is, yes, I was here in Princeton for a year uh, between 2016 and 17 to work on theological implications of life elsewhere in the universe. And the project was funded by NASA, but I wasn't employed by them directly. And I think that's where many of the articles were, were wrong. So the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, a fantastic research institution, and in fact, I'm back here at this very moment for two years. They had an inquiry, as they call it, on the societal implications of astrobiology, so that's the place of life in the universe, which ran from, I think, 2005 to eight, something like that. I was there in the middle of it. And it was mainly theologians, but there were ethicists as well. And it was mainly Christian theologians, because that's the tradition of the center, but there were representatives from other faith traditions as well. And they had this tremendously innovative, 
and productive. Three years thinking about life elsewhere in the universe. And there was NASA money behind it. But the crucial thing that the reports got wrong is that they weren't hiring us directly. What sort of drew you to this fascinating topic of theology and extraterrestrial life? I would say that it struck me as being a good topic for teaching. That was the first thing. So I have a third year paper in Cambridge, a course, you'd say, which is on themes in contemporary biology and thinking about them from a theological perspective. We look at developments in evolutionary theory, neuroscience, technology, all sorts of things. One of the things that it includes is life elsewhere in the universe. And it struck me as a topic that would easily engage the interest of students, and that does turn out to be the case. So I first got into it in quite a general way by thinking this would be a great theme to bring into my teaching. I also had noticed more generally that there was a surprising lack of attention in theology to life, biological life as a topic. Obviously, we think about various charged moral questions often medical ones do the beginning and end of life, and that's important for theologians to address. But the nature of life itself doesn't get looked at very often. And you can see that by looking at encyclopedias of theology and dictionaries of theology. They'll generally not have an entry on life. They might have an entry on eternal life. I can think of one that has an entry on the tree of life, but it doesn't have an entry on life. So that had already provoked my interest in doing some work that was on the nature of life. And then this job research opportunity came up at Princeton, at the Centre of Theological Inquiry. And I thought, yeah, I'm interested in this. I'll throw my hat into the ring. And I got that uh, nine-month period there working on it. And I started writing a book on the implications of life elsewhere in the universe for the whole range of topics in Christian theology. You might say Christian systematic theology. So that's the kind of theology that goes through creation. Who is Jesus? What does he do? What's sin? What's eternal life? What's God? Who's God? So uh, that book is with the publishers now, with Cambridge University Press. It'll be out, I think, at the beginning of 2023. And I really go through all the big themes in Christian systematic theology and say, if you open the newspaper tomorrow and there's evidence of life elsewhere in the universe, what difference would it make to these doctrines? I try to put them a bit in their hist- this question in its historical context, which we could talk about a little bit more, I think, that the history side of things has, has proven to be interesting. So that's the story. I started out interested in it because of teaching. Then I ended up in Princeton thinking about it for a year, writing this book up. And then something we could, we could talk about later, perhaps, is the new centre in Cambridge, which I've been to put together on life in the universe, which has a strong arts and humanities angle to it. And then I'm back at the Centre of Theological Inquiry. They've very generously given me a fellowship here for the next two years, and they're a partner in this Cambridge centre. And so it's very much back on my radar screen of things that I'm working on. I should say that also my, my background is as a chemist, first of all, and I did a doctorate in biochemistry. So these scientific questions are always bubbling around in the back of my mind for that reason. What is the title of your upcoming book? It has the very prosaic title of Astrobiology and Christian Doctrine. So you'll find that publishers are less and less enthusiastic about poetic titles of books because they're thinking about search engines. And so they want just a string of words that will turn up nicely in, string, in search engines. And it used to be the case that books had poetic titles and descriptive subtitles. But if you look nowadays, they tend to have descriptive titles and poetic subtitles if you get one at all. Yeah, let's go ahead and jump deep into the topic. So you have, you said a doctorate in, you said chemistry, correct? My undergraduate degree is in chemistry, and then I did a DPhil doctorate in biochemistry before going on to theology, and then I did a theology degree and a theology a PhD later on. 
but my roots are in chemistry and biochemistry. You brought up the history element of it, and that's something that's fascinating. I wasn't planning on talking about that, but I'd love to hear a little bit about that. This was one of the surprises for me that the Christian church, Christian theologians have been thinking about life elsewhere in the universe, theological implications, pretty much continuously since 1450. That's quite surprising. I didn't know that until I started looking into this in a bit more detail. So you've got a Franciscan who is called William of Verrouillon, I think, something like that, who is a quite prominent theologian in the 15th century, and Nicholas of Cusa, who is every theologian's favourite 15th century theologian and uh, one of the absolute masters for the ages. And both of them mention life elsewhere in the universe. Both of them take it in their stride, and both of them move on frustratingly quickly. So Cusa gives us a paragraph at most, I'd say, really just a, a few sentences, really. And he expects that there's life elsewhere in the universe. I think he even thinks there is uh, life elsewhere in the universe. And William gives us a little bit more, and he does bring in some theological topics like sin and relation to Christ and so on. But even then, he moves on after a, a paragraph. And this seems to be the pattern. But by and large, theologians were just not worried about it enough to write about it at great length. So. John Ray is sometimes described as the father of British natural history writing. There's this wonderful book called The Wisdom of God in the Works of Creation. I think that's what it's called. And he has a paragraph in which, rather, I think in a rather advanced way for his time, he, he recognises that stars are other suns, and he thinks they'll have other planets around them, and the planets will be inhabited, and that's marvellous, and it displays the glory of God and the plenitude of God. And that's it. He just, he just moves on. Or... John Wilkin, I think, was Bishop of Chester, he'd been master of Oxford College, Cambridge College, and a founder of the Royal Society. He was one of the first secretaries of the Royal Society, the preeminent English scientific society of great renown. And he wrote a book about life beyond Earth. And the fascinating thing is that even though it's a reasonably long book, the, the doctrinal bits, the bit about Christian theology, they're just like one column in the, one of the pages. So there's this very long history. I mean, I could go on and on about this. When Anthony Trollope, the great Victorian novelist, wanted to show a group of women, sort of educated, ordinary, upper middle class, I suppose, uh, women, not, not sort of academic specialists, talking about the things that people were talking about, he has them talking about life elsewhere in the universe and mentions the theological implications. And that, that's a good, a good indication that people were talking about this in Victorian times. Harper's Bazaar magazine had a story about it in the 1910s, I think. So it's just pretty much continuous interest in this topic from a theological perspective from the middle of the 15th century, mainly taking it in their stride, frustratingly writing not very much precisely because they're not that worried about it. So when Carl Sagan wrote, what, in the 1970s, maybe, that such a disappointment that the world's religious traditions have not been interested in this topic, and it, you know, it's to their detriment that they haven't been, he actually just doesn't know his history there because in my own Christian tradition, People have been thinking about it for a long time. And the same could be said for Islam and Judaism, for instance. When it comes down to it, though, it does still seem like there's, it wasn't a pressing topic. It seems like it's a cursory issue. Has it become more pressing to the church in recent times? Well, the big date here is going to be 1995, when Didier Kahlo and Michael Major discovered the first planet around another star, the first exoplanet. Didier is now in Cambridge, professor of astrobiology astronomy rather, and he's uh, leading the new centre that we're setting up. 
And he was just in his 20s when he made this discovery. He was awarded the Nobel Prize a few years ago for having discovered the first planet around another star. So that really did change everything. In the previous centuries, the jury was out, really, about whether there would be planets around other stars or not. There were two theories about how solar systems formed. One would produce planets just naturally, you know, perhaps almost every time. It's the nebula hypothesis, which is about these things coalescing out of dust. And then there was another theory, which was that you only get solar systems when one star bashes into another or a comet bashes into a star, collision hypothesis, which happens unbelievably rarely when you think how much space there is between stars. They just basically don't encounter one. And the Enlightenment angle actually had been a little bit more, well, people argue it both ways, but Kant, interestingly, the philosopher had been behind the nebula hypothesis, proved to be right. But the other one held sway for quite a long time. So it wasn't really until the 20th century that people were starting to think that there might be lots of planets around other stars. And it wasn't until we actually found one that we could be, could be certain. But I think even the people who favoured the frequent formation of planets theory have been taken aback by just how many there are. So they're just completely garden variety stars to have planets around them. Probably can't read the newspapers the last few years without having come across stories of new planets discovered and new solar systems. So I think that's what's changed things. That before 1995, we couldn't really be sure that there were other planets and planets are the most likely habitable thing. And then since then, the data's just been pouring in. So I do talks about this quite often in schools. And I tend to look at the internet on the morning and find out what the latest number of thousands of planets is. And I can give the kids that absolutely this morning, although it's probably up by one or two since this morning, uh, this, is, this is the answer. So that, it seems to me, is what really has, has changed everything. First thing, 1995. And then the other great date, let's hope it's, this turns out to be the case, would be Christmas Day 2021, when the James Webb Space Telescope was launched. And that's significant because it's one thing to be able to discover that there are planets around a star, but what we want to be able to find out is if there are any signs of life. And the James Webb Space Telescope is primed, is designed to look at light in the infrared region, so exactly the region in which you get data about what chemicals are present. I mean, you get data, I suppose, in lots of different wavelengths, but the infrared is particularly useful for detecting what gases might be present in the atmosphere. And that seems to be our best hope for detecting life. If you looked at the Earth from a long way away, and you looked at the gases that were in our atmosphere using infrared spectroscopy, so just seeing what wavelengths get absorbed in, that, in those frequencies, uh, you would think that something very strange was happening. Because there's lots of oxygen, 20%, whatever it is, 21%, which is very reactive. You know, why is that sticking around when it's so reactive? And even stranger, Oxygen is sticking around in the presence of molecules, chemicals that it reacts very readily with, especially, say, methane. So if we turn the tables and we look at other stars from here, other planets from here, and we find that there's a mixture of chemicals that wouldn't naturally stick around together, then that would be a fingerprint for something odd going on. And depending on what the gases are, it may well be an indication of life. So we really are now, and really only in the last year poised to be able to say that we'll get data that would give away the presence of life elsewhere on, on another planet. And that's why I think it's a question for the moment. When you talk about life on other planets, I think there's kind of like three different ways to see this sort of unintelligent life cells and that sort of thing. Or it could be intelligent life on other planets. Or we could be talking about intelligent life that's coming here 
to visit us. And that's where you get into things like UFOs and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. How do you see these different types of discoveries impacting us differently when it comes to faith? Would the discovery of one have a very different impact from the discovery of the other? Because it kind of seems like with the James Webb, we're only dealing with, you know, microbes on Venus. Well, not Venus, but like a extrasolar Venus. That doesn't seem to quite have the sort of robust impact that uh, an alien UFO landing on the White House lawn might. Hmm. Well, I, I might be inclined to think that the UFO would land on the lawn of Windsor Castle, but <laughs> it's difficult to tell. We just have to wait and see. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is an important question. And the imagination of public imagination is obviously informed by lots of science fiction films that are all about uh, encounter. And what we are able to do with things like the James Webb Space Telescope is look for it out there rather than waiting for it to come to us. Previously, I think people were fixed on intelligent life also because the other prospect of discovering life out there without it having to come to us, was that we might find the signs of technology. Most obviously, radio broadcasts, something like that. But people also talk about the ways in which an engineering project on a big enough scale, like one to try and capture all the light from a star, for instance, would give itself away in terms of infrared light that will probably be given off by that sort of endeavor. So until we had this capacity to look at the atmospheres of other planets, we really were only thinking about life because it's the only way it could give itself away. Sorry, we were only thinking about intelligent life. Before the James Webb Space Telescope and this kind of technology, we were thinking about intelligent life because it was the only kind that would be able to give itself away. The centre that I'm involved with in Cambridge is very much on the origins of life. So they think that once you get to life, once you got to a single cell, that would be game over. That, you know, just add history and you get advanced stuff. They're interested in the transition from inorganic into organic, into, into life. Uh, and once that gets, that, that's the great question that, that is uh, of, of interest to people. And I don't think we should let that go. I think if it turns out that the, life, the universe is full of life, whether it's intelligent or not, or whether we know whether it's intelligent or not, that is still an astonishing thing. It tells us something about whether the universe is kind of poised to bring forth life or not. Is it unbelievably rare? Or is it in the DNA of the universe that when the opportunity arises, life will arise? That does seem to me a really interesting question. When I was in Princeton five or six years ago, we had lots of wonderful scientists come to talk to us, and they kept saying to the theologians, don't get fixated on intelligent life, because the chances are that there are thousands, millions of times more non-intelligent life, plants with non-intelligent life than there are with intelligent life. Of course, there are really interesting questions here about what we, how we define intelligence and so on, but we could probably let that, let that ride for now. And you just need to think about the history of the Earth for however many, what, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years we've had uh, sentient hominids. And for whatever it is, a billion or two years before that, we had life. So for the tiniest sliver of Earth's history, have we had intelligent life compared to uh, life before it? That, I think, gives us some kind of indication of the, the distribution. The chances are that if we detect life, it's going to be unintelligent life. Now, my book tracks then towards asking questions about intelligent life, despite what the scientists said to us, because there's a chapter on life, there's a chapter on habitation and habitability. There are certainly things you can write about that are in interesting about you know, life as such. But I think the theological mind is always going to go towards sentient life because of the categories that we're most interested in. We're interested in in love and memory and intelligence and relationships 
like not just a relationship that's like between one object and another, but a kind of relationship between persons. We're interested in persons. We're interested in sin and redemption and these sorts of things. And so even if only, if there's any life out there, one in a million instances of it is intelligent, I think that is whether whether the scientists like it or not, that is probably where the theologian's mind is going to be attracted. And we're talking about the most astonishing numbers here. So this is the thing about, you know, why do this work now? I'm just trying to remember these numbers off the top of my head. But if, say, 20% of stars are sun-like, if 20% of those stars have got Earth-like planets, then I think it's something like 16 billion billion Earth-like planets around sun-like stars in the observable universe. So even if you know, a relatively small number of those have got life, and then a relatively small number of those uh, have got intelligent life, we're still potentially talking about really enormous numbers. Now, scientifically, that's a good case for thinking that there's something out there. But theologically, if I were to press you, does your belief in God and Christ, does that press you to think that there's going to be more life in the universe or less life, or does it have any impact at all? Theologically, are we as Christians tilted one direction or another? I think that's a great question, and it's actually a really good general question beyond just this particular subject matter for thinking about the relationship between scientific thinking and theological thinking. My instinct is to say that I'm wary about making scientific claims on the basis of theology because it feels like a bit of a mismatch of domain there, of of responsibility. Also, I suppose I'm wary of making claims that then if they were disproven, it would seem to bring the faith into disrepute. It seems to me God has made the world to have its proper integrity. Science describes that. It seems to me the job of the scientist to answer basic scientific questions like that. And having said that, one can have one's instincts. So I'd probably want to make a distinction about saying, I'm not going to tell the scientists their business about such things as whether the production of life is easy or not, for instance. But I might have my instincts. I might say, I can take both answers in my stride. I should be able to. But one of them might seem to accord a little bit more. All other things being equal, this is where my instincts lie. Then I think it matters what kind of Christian theology you you go for. So my general guiding star in most things is Thomas Aquinas. I'm what you call a Thomist. Dominican friar of the middle of the 13th century, middle of the end of the 13th century, and just one of the greatest intellects that's ever, ever been. And just an absolutely astonishing thinker who is very biblical, very philosophical. He knows the Greek Christian tradition. He knows the Latin Christian tradition. He knows lots of philosophy. He brings that very um, productively in. Anyway, I'm I'm a great flag flyer for Thomas Aquinas. But if you came from a different theological perspective, you really might answer things slightly differently. So I'm not going to sort of speak for all Christians. But if I'm going to speak from my own perspective, he would say that the boundlessness of God, the, the plenitude of God, is reflected in creation through multiplicity and diversity. So he's a great celebrant of the fact that the world is so rich and diverse. And he doesn't think that that makes a perfect image of God. In fact, creation and creator are completely incommensurate. Nonetheless, the kind of respect that creation will pay to its creator is through multiplicity. It's a beautiful vision, I think, of manifoldness and diversity and relationship as well. It's not just that there are lots of different things, but he, he loves the entanglement of, of all these things being in, in relationship to one. In fact, one of the reasons that people in his period thought that there probably couldn't be life elsewhere uh, in the universe 
they thought there was a serious argument against it, was that it would be disconnected. And they saw that the world, they thought the world was made for relationship. And the idea of a sort of civilization that was disconnected from another one, they thought uh, was a kind of offensive to their, their theological instincts. There's something beautiful about that, but there are lots, if there's lots of life and it doesn't know about one another, you know, that's probably not insurmountable. So if you're someone who celebrates the diversity and multiplicity of creation, then that might turn your instincts towards thinking that the universe is going to be, contain lots of life. But as I say, I'm not going to prescribe things one way or another. One of the things theologians have sometimes said, and I think here this is wrong, is to say there's got to be lots of life because otherwise what's the point of all the rest of creation? There's a French theologian who said, uh, if that's true, then the plinth is too big for the statue. And I think that's wrong for a couple of reasons. One, if the whole universe in a, of un- incomparable size only had the life of Earth, that still seems to me not too big a plinth for that statue. Because I think there's something about when life comes into existence that is just so astonishing that it is of a, of a, a singular glory. And then when that becomes conscious and it can relate to one another and it can relate to God, that is of just such astonishing dignity that there should be things upon earth that are made in God's image. If that was all there was in the whole universe, I don't think that would be a waste of all the rest of the universe. I also think it's a kind of rude, rude thing to say that other stuff isn't important just because it doesn't contain life. So if there are all these amazing pinwheel galaxies and black holes and nebulae and so on, they're glorious too. Uh, I, I think that to say that they're just the background for human life would also be a problem. I'm sure God takes delight in the, the glories of all of that as well, even if I think life is of a supremely glorious order. So there would be theologians who say that there's got to be life everywhere because otherwise what's the point of all that other stuff? And I don't take that line. But the idea that the plenitude of God tends to be reflected in the world in multiplicity, that does make me instinctively enthusiastic, let's say, about the prospect of there being a variety of life. But I let the scientists pursue their course in a scientific way. There seems to be this connection that I feel, at least out there in popular culture, that the discovery of intelligent life on other planets would somehow displace our importance and somehow chip away at the Imago Dei in the same way that people often assume that sort of the Copernican revolution displaced humanity at the center of the universe. And maybe I get this from sort of Douglas Adams or those types of things. I'm not sure. But how would you kind of respond to that sort of thing that pairs the discovery of a broader universe of life with a retreat of this religious view of the human person and the Imago Dei? Well, there's so much to be said about this. I'll try and do my best, but there's so much to be said. And there's a chapter on this in the the book. So one thing I think to say is, it's just a mischaracterization of Christianity, and I'm sure of the other Abrahamic faiths, to say that it puts humanity at the center. Now, this might sound like a trite thing to say, but it puts God at the center. And that is tremendously important. You know, if, it's, if it turns out it's not all about us, well, that's not news to, to Christianity. So that's an obvious point to make, but I think the most important one to start off with. The second thing to say would be, I think, to mention the place of angels in Christian thought. And I'm not particularly saying that what has to feature in your vision of the world, although I think it's pretty integral to Christianity, but to say that down all of those centuries, there's always been a sense that there was other stuff. Now, I'm not at all equating alien life with angels, 
I'm a Thomist, so I tend to think of angels as being immaterial, for instance. But the point is that within the Christian imagination, there's always been other stuff, other things, other intelligent things, other things that God's interested in, other things that relate to God. So it's not like we're suddenly going to find out in 2025 that there are other beings in creation, if that, if that happens. So the theological imagination has always had place for other things. I also think of the book of Job. So the book of Job is like this great safari where God doesn't answer Job's question directly. He just takes Job on this trail around creation and says, look at this thing. Do you know about that thing? How about this star system and this amazing creature? and..." Leviathan and, and so on. I think this is really directly addresses your question. That passage of Job is about saying, there's more to creation than you know. God has interests beyond you, and it's not all about you, and it puts humanity in its place. I always like going to aquariums, because I think it's like walking a bit through that chapter of Job. Just all this incredibly weird stuff and glorious stuff. Just getting on with its own business, we don't see it all the time, but God knows about it. I think the book of Job already uh, helps us to have an expanded vision. So there, there's some sort of general questions. I also think this is a wonderful topic to answer about, to think about, because it helps us to think what we mean about the Imago Dei, the image of God, and to ask some fairly fundamental questions about it. So if people think that because there's other stuff, we are somehow devalued, what they're saying is that the Imago Dei is basically a competitive category. Whereas I absolutely don't think it's a competitive category. I tend to think of it in objective terms. You're in the image of God because you relate to God and to one another, or you're in the image of God because you have memory, intellect, and will, or you're in the image of God because you have a certain role or capacity. I'd say all of, all of the above. It just doesn't seem to me that any of that is diminished because there's other life elsewhere of which that would be true. We could even say that of the earth. If it turns out that chimpanzees it doesn't seem to be the case, but if it turned out that they had a rich interior moral and spiritual life, or that dolphins uh, did, I don't feel like I would be demoted because they, they do too. My attitude is to say the more the merrier. I just don't think it's a competitive thing. And then maybe the last thing to say on that is the glory of what God does with human beings just doesn't seem again to be diminished, even if there are other stories about what God does elsewhere. The story that we tell my tradition of beginning in Advent through Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Passiontide, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost. The glory of that, that's the story of God's dealings with us, just doesn't seem to me diminished because God might, you know, have, might be other stories to be told. When I was here in Princeton, to approach this from a slightly different angle, uh, last time, there was this amazing string quartet that was giving a performance of all of Beethoven's string quartets, one of the absolute crowning glories of music. And I was working on this at the time, and I was in the concert hall one evening, and I thought, this quartet is just a musical miracle. And if there are other cultures elsewhere that have other amazing artistic cultural products, it doesn't diminish Beethoven. Beethoven is this string quartet, this Bach, cello suite, whatever, is no less glorious because there might be other things. Just as like, I'm not a great appreciator of jazz, unfortunately, I've spent enormous amounts of time listening and reading music, uh, reading about music. But I have a bit of a failure to appreciate the jazz. But I recognize that it is as great a musical tradition as the classical music that I tend to listen to. And I don't think that Bach music devalues this jazz musician's music or vice versa. Anyway, there's an analogy. I love the fact that you pointed out God, not humanity, is at the center 
But what occurred to me while you're talking is, well, if we're going to talk about God as Christians, God became human. So you can't really talk about God without talking about humanity, which kind of puts them back in the center, right? God didn't become a dolphin. But what then of extraterrestrial life? Wouldn't he need an incarnation for every single mm -hmm. one? What do we do with Christ? Is he uniquely human? So I think that raises a whole host of issues. And I just want to open that up to you. I would say there's no other area of theology that invites quite as much consideration, we think about life elsewhere in the universe, as this topic of the, the nature and person of Christ. And it has been quite polarized. People tend to belong to one position or another. People who really don't like the idea that there could be more than one incarnation and people who think that's the natural way for things to be. I think there are five chapters on this in the book. So I, I recognize that it's a, it's a big topic. I maybe would come at it by talking about different ways of asking the question. So one way of asking the question would be, is more than one incarnation necessary? Another would be, is more, more than one incarnation possible? And again, these tend to be quite separate conversations and people tend to belong to one camp. I think I'm going to reassure people who, I hope I'm going to reassure people, who think that I'm somehow devaluing Christ by saying, I don't think that more than one incarnation is necessary. I think a drop of Christ's blood can redeem the entire cosmos. I think that Jesus is God, the Son, the Word, united to a human nature. And that can be seen as, but it is, a matter of God uniting himself to creation, to creaturehood. So it's perfectly possible, I think, to say that every creature everywhere could recognize that God has come to them in coming as a human being, because in coming as a human being, God has come as a creature. Medieval category that can do quite a lot of work is the idea of the rational creature, the, or the rational animal, Aristotle, basically. So you could say that in becoming a rational animal, God has united himself to all the rational animals. And that would be enough. I don't think any more than that is necessary. On the possibility question, it's not my job to say what is and isn't possible to God, but the tradition has generally tended not to want to be that prescriptive. I mean, God can't do things that are just nonsense. C.S. Lewis is great about this. You can't put together a, a jumble, a salad of words, has no meaning, and then put the words God can in front of it, and suddenly it becomes sensical. There are some people who have argued that there couldn't be one, more than one incarnation because it's just that kind of thing, a kind of nonsensical jumble of words. But I don't take that line. I think it would be possible for God to unite himself to more than one creaturely nature. The angle I want to take on this is not actually what's necessary or what's possible, but what is suitable or fitting. And I leave that in God's hands. I don't know whether it's necessary. I don't think it is. I don't know if it's possible. I think it is for there to be more than one incarnation. But what I do know is that God will do something that is supremely suitable or fitting. And within that framework, I can explain to you why my instinct is to say that I think there will be something supremely fitting about multiple incarnations. But if that doesn't turn out to be the case, let the judge of all the earth do right. God will do the suitable thing. So I'm happy to talk about that, why I err on the multiple incarnations. I like the idea of multiple incarnations. It is odd thinking that there might be multiple incarnations sitting at mm -hmm. the right hand of mm -hmm. God, that sort of language that we use. But the initial question that comes to my head is if there's one incarnation, would we need to bat would you baptize a Martian if they landed on either the White House lawn or at Windsor Castle? Well, let me just say something quickly about why I are in that direction, which is God came to us in Christ in a way 
that makes God visible to us and communicates to us. The like, supremely communicative thing is for God to have a human body and speak human words with human gestures. That would be enough to redeem, if they need to be redeemed, that's a whole extra question. Life elsewhere in the universe, but I don't think it would speak to them in the same way as it, it speaks to us. And so, in as much as God is not only coming among us, not only redeeming us, but also revealing himself to us in Christ perfectly. It seems to me that the way in which a species that has a very different body and a very different way of life and completely different linguistic conventions and so on, I just, I'm not sure that the, that the human Christ would be so communicative to them. And so for that, that's why I think that there's something particularly beautiful about the idea of that kind of radiant, full communication that comes from taking up the species. Would I baptize an alien? So that's a, a great question. And there's so much behind it that I, I think we could have a whole podcast on it. So I think that I would want to say, let's imagine this is a sort of sentient, sentient creature. I could recognize it as a beloved creature, open to salvation. You know, I could recognize it as a bear of the image of God. If I didn't baptize it, it wouldn't be because I was denying any of those things. I think the question would be, which, so theologians talk about an economy of salvation. Like it's the whole story and order and logic of salvation. It's a, it's a history, but it's also things like the place of the church and the sacraments and so on. And my question would be, does this Martian fall within that pattern, household of salvation, or not? So if there's only one incarnation, then I guess the answer tends towards yes. And in which case you might say, is by being brought into the body of the human Christ that the Martian is to be redeemed, if the Martian needs to be redeemed. And so maybe that would adhere towards the, the yes. But I think it's also possible that there's more than one story of salvation. I mean, it would be, be all within the one overarching story of who God is. But if, especially if it turns out that other places have a similarly rich and specific history of God's dealings with them, especially if it weren't to involve incarnation, then that's when I might be a bit more reticent about the idea of using the language of baptism, because it might be that there's a whole different set of sacraments that relate to that kind of nature. I mean, so for instance, if there was a, a form of life that didn't involve water, or for which water was completely toxic, then it seems like God would adapt means of grace and, and salvation that were accommodated, it's a great theological word, that were shaped according to the form of life of the creature. But for me, it really comes down to the question of whether there's a, a kind of arc, a story, an economy, the theologians say, of salvation that would be worked out in a specific way in different places, in which case it might just seem a bit proprietorial for me to say, I've got to, I've got to baptize you, or whether it all comes up, it's all gathered into the, the one kind of human-centric story. Pope Francis said uh, with characteristic generosity he would baptise a Martian. And I think he was just there talking about extending love and, and uh, recognising the work of God as st stretching to all things. You've shown today that the search for extraterrestrial life is much broader and more respectable than UFO sightings and Area 51 and those types of things. However, are there any such sightings that you think might be worth a second look? Is there anything to this vast array of often ridiculous and then funny sightings that is actually worth exploring? We brought the tinfoil hat just for this <laughs> section. You're being much more uh, detrimental <laughs> than I am. You're going to get all sorts of angry letters for those comments, I'm sure. So I just am going to plead disciplinary incompetence here. 
that I, this is just does not come under my area of, of study. And so I have no more to say about this than just a member of the public. I think the one thing that I might be able to bring to this is to say traveling between stars, never mind between galaxies, is an extraordinarily difficult proposition because you need to travel at enormous speeds. So that's unbelievable amounts of energy. You need to be able to slow yourself down. And when you're traveling at those sorts of speeds, even to hit a sort of speck of dust is going to do astonishing damage. If you're traveling at a fraction, you know, reasonable fraction of the speed of light, you hit a, a speck of dust, an enormous bomb going off. So I just don't think we should underestimate the technological challenges of traveling even between stars. So that's why I tend to take a more, bit more skeptical view. I also think if you have the technology to be able to do that, it's astonishing. You know, you, you travel all these light years, the chances are you wouldn't then accidentally crash in Nevada. You know, it seems to me you can't have it both ways. If we have the kind of technological sophistication to be able to travel between stars, it seems like not going to crash. In terms of sightings, I just be agnostic, I think. Uh, I think it's interesting, as far as I know, that Congress has said in the last couple of years, hasn't it, that these things are not to be just dismissed. I don't feel like I've got a dog in the fight, to use a horrible, uh, <laughs> a horrible image. I don't feel like I've got a vested interest in the answer to this being uh, yes or no. But I'm by nature not someone who particularly runs with conspiracy theories. So the idea that all of this is kind of somehow hidden just psychologically doesn't sort of chime with me. But uh, I do think it's, I personally think it's much more likely that the signs of other life, if there is any, will come to us through the spectra at the atmospheres of other stars. Possibly it'll come through broadcast, possibly it'll come through contact. It seems to me that's much less likely. But they're all good reasons for wanting to be prepared. That's why I think it's worth the church investing in thinking about these things. When or if there's evidence of life elsewhere in the universe, people will turn to their religious traditions for guidance, for bearings. We talk a lot about secularization, but the vast majority of the world's population take their big bearings in life and questions of meaning and purpose and their place in the world from a religious tradition, which Christianity would be numerically the largest. And I think it's really important that the church has, and it is, it is, it's true, it is, thinking about these things in advance so that if there's something to respond to, we can do it in an informed, measured, authoritative, calm kind of way. I also think that it's worth thinking about these questions, even if evidence of life in the universe never shows itself, because it helps us to come to familiar questions from new angles. So that question that you asked me, oh, well, if there's other life, does that devalue the human being, reveals something about the way in which we think about the image of God. The question of, is life elsewhere in the universe necessarily fallen or not, raises really interesting questions about the transmission of sin, but also about the inevitability or otherwise of sin. So if you come to the perspective that life doesn't have to be fallen, does not wired in that a creature species is going to make a rebellious choice inevitably, that tells us something about the nature of sin. So I think even if there isn't ever evidence of life elsewhere in the universe, it's turned out to me anyway to be a really productive exercise to think through the key, old, important, perennial questions in theology from this perspective and to come at them at slightly new angles and avenues, which seem to me to be quite productive and help us to rejoice in all the old stuff for new reasons. So if I could summarize maybe the key point for this, it's that if there is a discovery of extraterrestrial life, 
that's an opportunity for the church rather than something that gives us should give us any sort of existential angst or worry for how that might negatively impact us. It feels like you're presenting this as a an exciting opportunity rather than something the church should be worried about. Well, I have to say, I do feel that way about almost everything. So when Richard Dawkins talks about Christianity as being a claustrophobic tradition, I can just say that that is the opposite of my own experience, that it is expansive, confident, you know, with these great ancient traditions of thinking about things, you can draw wells, draw water from those old wells. I I mentioned Aquinas one last time. He said, the job of theology is to think about God and everything in relation to God. So that's marvellous, thinking about everything in relation to God. But it's also important that it's everything. So I think the theologian down the centuries has had the job of thinking about everything in relation to God. Nothing's off the table. And that kind of confident, broad, expansive, open-hearted approach to thought seems to me characteristic of Christianity as I know. So, yeah, I take this in a fascinated, I hope, open-hearted sort of way. Uh, But I hope that the, the theologian would do everything that way. As we've also said, there's a long theological history about thinking about this explicitly since the middle of the 15th century. There's also some sociological and ethnographic work Ted Peters did, an associate, asking people, asking people from all sorts of different religious traditions, mainly Christian and then one or two other world religions, different kinds of Christian tradition. Would they be threatened? Would their faith be threatened by evidence of life elsewhere in the universe? And the overwhelming response is no. So there's a bit of a difference from tradition to tradition, but the absolutely unequivocal Big scale response is that Christian believers say that they wouldn't be threatened by it. The other interesting thing is that he asked atheists whether they thought the religious believers would be threatened, and they got that wrong. The answer was yes, they'll be threatened by it. That's something like 80 20 in both cases. You, you ask the religious believers, will you be threatened? And 80% say no, and 20% say yes. And you ask the non believers, would the believers be threatened by evidence of life elsewhere in the universe? And they say 80% yes, 20% no. And those figures are ballpark. I'm just dredging them from my memory, but it's something like that. I think that's interesting ethnographic work. You've got the historical story. And I think you've just got the character of Christianity that it just has no reason to be threatened in thinking about God's world and God's dealings. That's a great line to close on. Dr. Davison, thank you so much for your time. Any closing thoughts? Well, just to uh, congratulate you on this first series of your new podcast and to to wish you all the best for that. I love, Seth, that we had this respectable Cambridge biochemist and theologian who's also at Princeton and affiliated with NASA, and you just had to throw in the tin hats there. You just had to get that on the record. Well, you had to throw in the UFOs, so we have this respectable person, and you asked the most conspiratorial thing (laughs) that you could possibly think of, is which UFOs do you think are real? And he basically had to say, well, I, you know, if they could get here, I don't think they're crashing in Nevada. Yeah, well, he sort of said that, but he also said, I don't think I'll answer this as well. Well, Well, here's the thing he didn't consider is Nevada is where Las Vegas is. So they could have crashed after a hard night at Vegas. That actually does make sense to me. Well, that that accounts for all the information and probably the simplest Occam's razor kind of terms there so that exactly you've solved it. Well, but I think that is what we, you know, a lot of our listeners and us still wanted to know. We know that there's a more respectable academic discussion going on, but there's still this curious little George inside of us that's like, are they real? Are they green? Do they have big heads and big eyes? And are they among us? 
We still, that's what we want to know. Yeah, but that's the thing, though. We bring on a scientist, we bring on a theologian, they're going to give us the scientific theological answer, which is he's right. If we're going to find alien life, it's more likely to be a microbe on Venus than it is going to be the UFO on the White House front lawn. I'm sticking to my guns here. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how he discussed how even that would be significant. Like, people want the alien on the White House lawn and Independence Day. I do. And all, yeah, of course we want that. But it would still be immensely significant to find just a single-celled... Boring. It would still be significant to find a single-celled organism anywhere. Unless it's like the Andromeda strain. Boring. <laughs> Who cares? No, okay, that actually is really interesting. If there is life on other planets, even if it's just the microbes, that's, I mean, that's step one, but at least that's a step, right? Because right now we are totally and completely alone, biologically speaking, in the universe. Well, and it's interesting because it's not just spatial distance that makes it difficult to detect alien life. It's not just spatially we're far away from other things in the universe. It's also the temporal distance. What are the odds that we would stumble upon a planet that was at the right stage of evolution at the right time for us to encounter intelligent life or that sort of thing? Yeah, that's actually like one of the answers to the Fermi's paradox. Fermi's paradox is if alien life is everywhere, why isn't it evident why haven't we detected it yet it should be quite obvious if alien life is everywhere and one of the answers is that there's this giant bottleneck that species go through before they can really make it out into interstellar or make radio communication so the question is if, if that's true because it does answer fermi's paradox have we gotten past it yeah or is it lying in the future do most species that reach our level kill themselves off in nuclear war before they make it into space it's one of those weird or kill themselves off in nuclear war after they make it into space. Well, that, as well. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot harder, though, if you're occupying like a thousand different planets to have a complete nuclear annihilation, though. The the Musk effect, the Elon Musk plan, we can annihilate Wait, as what? that's the Elon Musk plan. Like we can annihilate as many planets as we want, as long as we exist on other planets as well. Well, that's Stephen Hawking, too. He said that we should be a two planet species, right? So yeah. give the man a break. <laughs> I wasn't critiquing. I was just stating. One of the things I wanted to ask him about, and I didn't get around to it, is how would the discovery of intelligent life or the discovery that there's nothing to be discovered, how would that impact sort of design type arguments that people make? Because I often hear that, you know, if life on other planets is quite common, if we discover that life throughout the universe is quite common, then that means that it's not that miraculous that we've evolved the way that we have, and therefore you don't need to bring God into that. Or vice versa, if there is no life out there in the universe other than us, we seem to be more miraculous because this isn't something that just naturally happens in the universe. There's something special about this that might require a special cause. I would love to have heard his thought on those types of things. I would nearly see that in the opposite direction, which is a universe filled with life kind of is what I'd expect from a god who likes life forms. I would be kind of shocked if the universe from a god who is life is described by the Bible as life itself is just devoid of life and it's just got us. That to me would make me think we're just a, a random freak accident, a one in a trillion, trillion, trillion accident that just so happened to end up with us. Well, I think it's interesting that you sort of flipped that. Instead of saying that a miraculous intervention of nature is what requires a supernatural divine cause, you're saying, well, what if the fact that all of nature tends towards life 
suggests that at sort of an ontological base level root, there's something divine that caused all of this. Why does nature tend towards life as a whole? Uh, And so instead of trying to interrupt nature with God, just have God be involved in all of it at all levels throughout the universe. Rather than looking at a watch and saying it needs design, look at the watchmaking factory and say that needs design even more. Even though it on its own, once you have the watchmaking factory, it can make thousands of different watches. The factory itself is itself a better argument for the design. It's bigger, it's more complicated in itself. I think it could forward that argument better. Again, this isn't just wholesale advocating of the design argument, but it definitely seems like if that would be a stronger version of it. Yeah. So I actually think that the discovery of alien life would, if anything, help. Hmm, Because then we're not a lucky one in a trillion chance in a universe that's overall cold, lifeless, and dead and trending towards death. But rather, the universe has this tendency towards life, almost an optimistic tendency. I know he said that the scientist shouldn't be told what to do by the theologian, but I still want to retain this idea that we worship a god of life, so maybe we should expect life. I would be shocked and amazed if the universe was devoid of life. I would be shocked and amazed if God didn't create planets filled with beautiful vistas of creatures on it, because God himself, God enjoys this. Talked about Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, the diversity of the created world better reflects the beauty and perfection of God. So I do think this is an expectation we should bring. I don't think it's a disproof if the universe is devoid of life, obviously. But as far as like expectations and leanings, I think he was right when he said, yeah, I lean this way. Yeah, that's interesting. It's the opposite of what I think a lot of people would assume. I think a lot of people listening probably assumed that a theological view negated extraterrestrials or at least didn't lead in that direction but we're almost taking the opposite tack it leans toward that direction i actually have known christians like good christians who have told me that the discovery of alien life would wreck their faith yeah and that kind of was the inspiration for this episode for me at least from on my side was there are other christians out there who are deeply concerned (laughs) yeah that there are aliens out there. Now, I, d- I didn't actually specify if that was the microbe on Venus yeah. or the alien on the White House lawn. You know, those are two wholly different things. But at the end of the day, this is why I love that people like Andrew Davison are actually giving the church resources to say that, no, this isn't our faith is in Christ, not on our us being the only intelligent species in the universe. For sure. There are precedents for these types of expansions throughout history. I mean, it was interesting that he brought up the tradition of dealing with alien life happening in the mid 1400s, because right around the end of that period is when we're going to encounter this new world and this Antipodeans. Yes. This, this broadening of the frame and the scope. And I wonder if that could almost be a test case for how we might interact with another broadening in the future, because I don't know how well we did in that that situation when we discovered the new world. What do you mean we? Well, I don't know. You're forgetting I mean, my heritage here. Well, I mean, okay. Well, so Seth is part Native American, so he gets to play that card uh-huh. when it's convenient. It is very convenient. Uh, my people, the British occupiers, the uh, I, I am the colonizer, didn't handle that on behalf of my faith very well in the past, and so. I imagine that the encounter with alien life would be this just on a a more cosmic scale. And 
We'd have lots of people trying to conquer or dominate or monetize the other and others trying to baptize them and then others just trying to, you know, there'd just be all these different responses. Okay, real question based on that, though. You're a pastor. Yeah. Alien flying saucer lands on your front yard, gets out. Madison is screaming. Your kids are running in fear. But the alien gets out and looks at you and says, you you are the people that God himself became incarnate to. Please welcome me into your faith and teach me of your ways. I wish to be baptized in the name of the God whom you worship. Would you then take them down to the nearest stream and would you baptize that Martian? I mean, in that situation, yes. Dr. Davison made some really good points and you wouldn't want to override the ways in which God has communicated to different communities and those types like all, with all of that in place but if an alien was actually wanting this and could express it in that terms like of course i would be open to that would you say no i mean i would say no. look here there is a stream let us go down and be baptized like you so know that's an obvious that's an obvious yes if it's like thrown in front of me i would rather stand before the judgment seat of god and said well what what should i have done in that case you know i'd rather say i erred on the side of baptizing the alien yeah. Right. But but it would be it would be interesting, like because I, I think a lot of Christians would see this as an evangelism thing. We need to go to Mars or these other planets and convert the quote unquote people. Yeah, I just I love the idea of like the 700 club. All right, folks, we need a, a hypersonic or a hyperdrive in order to reach the Alpha Centauri galaxy. So we're looking for funds. <laughs> these people are living on a planet that barely has enough oxygen. We need to bring Christ to their lungs today, and you can make a difference with three gifts of 9.95. I love the idea, the, the new 700 club, 700 light year club. <laughs> so something, he talked about them having different sacraments, different ways of worship and stuff like that, that's appropriate to them, right? And that was his justification for the idea of alien Jesus, right? Yeah. Is the need to be revealed in a particular way in a particular method because he thought as far as redemption goes the single blood drop of blood of christ is enough to redeem the whole universe on that point though so it seems like as far as redemption goes aliens are set you're welcome we humans took care of that right or yeah. a human among us took care of that but when it comes to god still needs to reveal themselves in a certain way well, you still need you, you still need this sort of bridge. Still needs to be a revelation in that capacity because God's not just going to come out of the sky and say, "Don't worry, just it, it's taken care of. Don't worry about the details. It's 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 off in a different galaxy." But yeah, I got to take it care of. Yeah, well, that doesn't exactly establish a way of life or religion, a ceremony, that sort of stuff, a community. Yeah, and I guess you have to have a sort of a general revelation. Is that what you're saying to those communities? Yeah. Like it doesn't makes sense that they have to discover how to travel near the speed of light before they get salvation yeah it's not well it's it's more than just redemption it's revelation right it's it's they need to know because christ didn't come i mean he came to redeem us but he came to do more than that right he came to establish church he came to establish community he gave us the lord's supper he gave us baptism he gave us all these different things right and that's why he brought up you know what about an alien species allergic to water what ceremonies, what things are they going to do in response to faith? Even if Christ on a different world took care of that, they still need their own sort of particular ways of dealing with that. That was interesting. Something I've been wondering about, and this is maybe getting a little disconnected, but 
the same feeling I have when thinking about traveling into outer space and the growth of our species to become a multi-planet species. I get this sense of awe and this sort of voyage into the unknown and infinite. And it feels very religious to me. It feels like the search for the other and unknown in a way that I wonder if it's it's almost a secular alternative to the religious narrative. Not for everyone, and it doesn't have to be that, but I wonder if in some ways outer space provides that sense of the infinite and the unknown and the other that secular society is lacking. You watch a film like Interstellar and it is imbued with this spiritual weight to it, even though it's ultimately an entirely secular vision. That which they can't accept on a spiritual plane, the infinite spirit, they have to find on the material plane. And the closest approximation to that infinite is the indefinite reaching outwardness of space. Yeah, there is something about the frontier that has a spiritual quality to it, I think. The idea of the unknown, the bigger, the thing we have not mastered but continues to master us, that always, I think, will garner a spiritual quality to it. And I think Interstellar gets that because we just see how big and how uncontrollable this, it's it's a wild west and that evokes a sublime sense of awe in us. And I think that itself does, yeah, I think it can be a surrogate for religion. But at the same time, I think it also evokes religion at the same time. The same stars that atheists look to are the same stars that the psalmist declares to be the glory of God. Yeah, it's a a secular equivalent of transcendence. And yet the Christian can also appreciate that that feeling of transcendence is valid and points us to the one who ultimately is transcendent and created the stars in the sky. Is there anything you just felt like that was either new to you or you didn't actually agree with? I thought it was interesting that statistically people weren't worried about alien life. Because in a lot of my conversations with people, my impression is that they don't see that as something that could be integrated into a religious worldview. I wonder if it was done in England among Anglicans. Yeah. My impression is we've kind of almost forfeited science fiction and this expanding world of other life forms to this sort of secular world with like Star Trek and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I can think of only one Christian equivalent to that off the top of my head, which would be C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. But other than that, And that's why he wrote it, right? Is he wanted to reclaim that space. He saw it as becoming exactly what it was, and he wanted to reclaim it for God. Yeah. Yeah, that it was shocking to me, the percentage is like 80-20, which, I mean, that still is 20%. That's a a significant minority of people saying, yeah, no, it would impact. And I'm guessing it means it in a negative way, virtually all that 20%, right? Yeah. That means one in five Christians, one in five Christians. Would have trouble with that. Yeah, would be have trouble with that, so... Well, and I imagine comparable issues, one in five Christians might have an issue with some sort of social issue that has become one of the major discussions for the church. And so if you put it in those terms, it actually would be a significant issue for enough people. I'm curious if it's always whenever you put it to people's faces in a poll, like I'm curious how much of an effect that would be. Like if a poll says, would it affect your faith if we found alien life? I just want to say, of course not. This is my faith. But maybe in private, it would disturb me to know that. Yeah. So I'm curious if if the that very effect, that polling effect has they can't really take out for that error. My impression is I could see a lot of people saying, no, nothing can touch my faith sort of in the like, I believe no matter what kind of way. But 
at the end of the day, those people still do feel the effects of doubt and other things, even if they don't admit it or take it on fully. It could still be a real challenge, even if they're not going to abandon their faith for it. Okay, different question, but it's related. So the alien, it lands on your lawn. But let's say the alien landed on your lawn and said, finally, you, I'm here to tell you of the revelation of Nakblar, the, the Martian savior. Uh, what is your, what, how would you, okay, would you say, actually, no, I'm sorry, Nakblar didn't save anyone. It's actually Jesus who saved someone. Or do we entertain the idea that maybe Nakblar is alien Jesus? Like, what do we, what do, we do in that sense? <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting parallel because there's the missionary story of missionaries who've gone to other places that have never heard about the Christian story before, places that have been isolated for centuries. And they tell them the Christian story. And the locals then say, oh, that's what his name is, Jesus. We've been talking about him for decades. We've been telling stories about this person for a long time, or they have some sort of equivalent sacrificial story, and those can kind of pair on. I don't know what the answer to that question is, theologically. I have no idea how you would... Either way, I could see problems with it. If you say, yes, that's Jesus, and let's just go with it. Well, you gotta take a stand. Well, what's... Just be, oh, well... it's problematic. You gotta take a stand somewhere. <laughs> Fine, I'll stay... I'll take the stance that, yes, that's Jesus. Let's go. Alien Jesus. And no! He, he, it's the same alien Jesus that also incarnated in the Americas in Missouri to the Mormons. Oh, um, my gosh. And, <laughs> now you're going to have to okay, cut this. That actually, that actually was an interesting point with the whole Mormons, him incarnating to the Native Americans. That actually is an interesting point because if we, if we entertain multiple incarnations on other planets, <laughs> Let's... Who's to say Krishna? Who's to say Krishna was not an incarnation of Jesus? Okay. And these other planets, these other planets are the same planets that we will get when we die and go to heaven. Those are the planets that's we get. Seth? That's a different issue. No, no. Okay. Mormon I'm actually, Jesus is coming for you. I'm, I'm being serious here because that's, if we allow for multiple incarnations on other planets, What's to say there's not multiple incarnations on our own for the... For the same reasons. Yeah, for the exact same reasons. And I'm not saying I buy into this, obviously. I'm saying that how does this not open up a problem if we affirm incarnations on another planet? Why not this one? That's a That creates a huge problem for us. I think that's an interesting point. And how far do you take that? Does Jesus have to incarnate over and over again? Reincarnate. Re yeah, I, I guess reincarnation. Re yeah. It's incarnation again. And yeah. I mean, does that just apply for, well, he incarnated once to the Jewish community. Now he needs to reincarnate again for the more Eastern community. Or is it like he needs to reincarnate also for the Roman community and for the British community and the German community? Like how finally down the line do we go? Yeah, it, it is funny though. I mean, I guess there are scripture like Acts 17 in the past. God overlooks such ignorance. It, it, it presupposes that they were ignorant, right? that there hadn't been this final ultimate revelation of God in flesh. So at least scripturally, there does seem to be this idea that Christ has to be unique in not yeah. just his redemptive quality, but also in his revelatory quality. So, and if that's yeah. And if that's problematic for other planets and other alien entities, I don't know if it's problematic in a way that's qualitatively distinct from how it's problematic when we're talking about tribes that have never heard the name of Jesus. Like, I think it's the same conceptual problem. It would just be expanded to the cosmic scale for alien life. 
but it's it doesn't introduce something new. There's just so many layers here because then you have to ask the question of do they even need redemption? Are they even fallen? Because that's something C.S. Lewis in the Space Trilogy entertains is this idea that they're just not fallen beings, that our fall only affected our planet and what we were responsible for. Mm. So maybe they just don't need it, the incarnation. Maybe they walk in communion with God in a way that we have no capacity for, which maybe it's why they're so advanced and won't <laughs> reveal themselves to us and why the UFO phenomenon so mysterious. Okay. All right, tinfoil hats going off. But okay, anyway, well, you're, it's, you're, it's multi-layered. You were getting close to heresy there, so I don't... Heresy? Uh, but I don't know. Is it is it heresy to say that a non-human species isn't tainted by sin? It's I don't in know. the space trilogy. It's... Oh, it's C.S. Lewis. Okay, you're safe. You've quoted... Yeah. You've, as long as you... Uh, an appeal ad Lewis in, you're good. Yeah, exactly. An appeal to Lewis. It's literally like the Third Testament for most evangelicals. <laughs> All right, well, I'm glad that we've replaced Jesus with C.S. Lewis. We've affirmed that Jesus appeared to... We've affirmed that Jesus appeared to the Native Americans, uh, as recounted by Joseph Smith, and that aliens are among us. Yeah, we've made a lot of progress today. Uh, I look forward to our next episode. Let's see what trouble we can get ourselves into then. I think you just wanted the last word here. I can say... again for listening to the spiritually incorrect podcast if you like what you heard please consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star review we're an up-and-coming podcast and every little bit helps also consider joining our patreon page patreon sponsors have exclusive access to unaired episodes different kinds of merchandise the ability to suggest an episode and even an hour-long interview with jonathan and i check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com and see what you're missing out on Sound effects from zatsplat.com. The opening song is thanks to Lexan Music and Alexi Justillin. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify. <laughs>